And we will turn in our Bibles. I invite you to follow along. Let's just turn to Hebrews. It is quoting Psalm 102, but it does so pretty much verbatim. So we can just read that portion from Hebrews today, which we'll dive into then. And by the Lord's help, try to uncover the riches of actually just three verses, beginning in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 1. Quoting from Psalm 102. Notice in verse 8, the author is saying, uh, this is what God, the Father, says of the Son, but of the Son, he says, and then it's quoting Psalm um, uh, 110, and then we pick up in, or excuse me, Psalm 45 there in verse uh, 8 and 9, and then we pick up in verse 10. So continuing that same argumentation, but of the Son, he says, that's what the and there of verse 10 is is referring back to. So, but of the Son, he says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Well, let's just remind ourselves where we are as we approach the conclusion of this chapter. We looked at verses 13 and 14 last week, so we won't touch on those again. Uh, But remember, chapter 1 is this defense that the author of Hebrews is taking up uh, to say that Jesus, the uh, Son of God, Christ, is more superior than angels. And he's done that so far um, by, by asserting three things. First, it's because the name that Jesus has is more excellent than the name that the angels have. What name is that? Namely, the Son of God. That was the first thing we saw. Then secondly, we saw he argued that, and this is in verse 5 or 6, that the angels worship Jesus, not the other way around. So therefore, he is more superior than angels. Then last week, we considered the fact that um, it is Christ who sits on the throne and it's the angels who do his bidding from Psalm 45 and Psalm, from Psalm 110. So finally now, Psalm 102 is picked up and we are told that Jesus is greater than angels because the Father says of the Son that he shares with the Father an act and two attributes. An act and two attributes. First, the act. We'll move through this briefly. The act is that he's the creator. Uh, according to Hebrews, Psalm 102 is a speech that the Father makes to the Son, and the, son, and the Father calls the Son Lord, and he says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in, in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The Father's saying, That's true of Jesus. And if the heavens are the work of his hands, surely then the heavenly hosts are inferior to Christ. The heavenly hosts are the work of his hands even. So the, the angels, the inhabitants of the heavenly places, they are... Uh, They belong to him through whom the earth and the heavens were made. Other scriptures tell us that Jesus had a critical role to play in creation. John 1, 3 says that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven 
and in earth, visible and invisible. Invisible, the things you and I see, invisible, the angelic hosts, the angelic realms. But perhaps the most parallel to what is happening in Hebrews 1 is a line from Paul in 1 Corinthians 8. That's verse 6. This is what he says. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. That's the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And then in the very same breath, same sentence, he says, and for us there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There, there's this exact parallel between the act of creation that's attributed to the Father and the act of creation attributed to the Son. Paul makes it so obvious that this same act that, that we say rightly that the Father has accomplished, we must also attribute to the Son. And Hebrews uses Psalm 102 to make the same point. The Father and the Son act together. Okay, that's the act. Second point this morning, the two attributes they shared. We're moving right along, right? As a Father and the Son, uh, as Father and Son, they share attributes. There's two. First, that's listed is eternality. Again, look at verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. When? In the beginning. Beyond that, We're told that after the beginning, he will continue on. They will perish, but you remain. Verse 12, your years have no end. Now, the eternality of God was something that the the Jews, they championed, they cherished. They would have extolled God with words from, for example, Psalm 90. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you formed the earth from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Eternality belongs to God, not to humans, but to God. But to ever dare attribute that that characteristic, that feature, the eternality of God, to attribute that to a mere human, well, that would be blasphemy. Likewise, with the divine characteristic of immutability, which is also asserted. So there are two attributes. The first, eternality. He's always existed and he always will exist in immutability. He won't change. The eternal Son of God is the Son of God who is eternally the same. Verse 12 says that so clearly, but you are the same. Now, the Jews heard Jesus make that claim of himself on more than one occasion. Anytime he applied, that great declaration of Yahweh, I am to himself. You know, when he says, I am the good shepherd, or I am the vine, I am the door. Before Abraham was, I am. They knew what he was saying. They knew that, that he was implying that he was eternal, that he was unchangeable just as the Yahweh who revealed himself to Moses. Now, they would eventually kill him for this. In John 19, they go to Pilate. The crowds plead with Pilate, the Jewish crowds. They say, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. Why? Because he made himself to be the Son of God. He's acting like he's one with God, that he shares in these qualities and these attributes with God. And we have a law probably referring to a Levitical law that talks about blasphemy. It says, if you blaspheme God, guess what? You get killed. So they say, Pilate, you have to kill him because of the claims he's making. But what are they missing? 
They're missing that Jesus didn't just say this about himself. The Father says it about him. That's the whole point of Hebrews 1. Of the Son, the Father says. This is what the Father thinks of the Son. This is what the Father says about the Son. And the Father says he is eternal. The Father says he is immutable. The Father says he is the creator. Is it blasphemy to put yourself at equal with God? Absolutely. Is it blasphemy to say that you are as good as God? Absolutely. But what if God says it of you? What if God says it of you? And that's what's happening here. God is saying it of Jesus. God's elevating this person. He's not taking these accolades onto himself. The Father says of the Son, he is the eternal and unchangeable creator. And maybe we shouldn't be that surprised. Perhaps it's a poor analogy, but if, if sons share in their father's likenesses, speech patterns, mannerisms, looks, should we be surprised that God the Son shares in the acts and the attributes of God the Father? The Father is sharing his glory with the Son. Now, the concept, though, that a man could claim to be God could never be seen as anything other than blasphemy. The Jewish people in Jesus' day, they could never get over this. No, the only way to understand it is that he's blaspheming. But what they failed to see, that it wasn't so much that a man was claiming to be God than that God was claiming to be a man. And God, for whom there is no statement, too marvelous to make, that God would never and could never commit blasphemy against himself. So, far from being blasphemous, what the people should have seen is that this was truly mysterious. And that's the third thing we consider, the third of four points this morning. We've seen the act that they share, the attributes that they share, and how this really is a mystery. The mystery. Mystery is the Bible's category for the incarnation. Paul writes in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What is it? That he was manifested in the flesh. It's a mystery. The Puritan, John Flavel, or Flavel, uh, writes this. It's a great wonder that God should dwell in a body of flesh, that the eternal God should be born in time, that the ancient of days should be as an infant of mere days for the infinitely glorious creator of all things to become a creature is a mystery exceeding all human understanding think about what's happening in hebrews in the book of hebrews in chapter one the author of hebrews quotes psalm 102 to make this assertion that jesus is the creator that he's the eternal creator, that he's the eternally unchanged creator. And that same author, in less than a chapter's time, is going to say, and he became like his brothers in every respect. What? How can that be? How can Jesus, being unchangeable, be made like us? How can the creator be created? How could the eternal be confined to a world that's marked by the rising and the setting of the sun and marked by seasons and years? How could, let's put it like this, how could the unchangeable go through puberty? 
Herman Bovink says that there was in Christ a gradual development, a, a progressive growth in body and in the powers of the soul and in favor with God and man. Think about some of those terms he's using. How can the term gradual development, that's what he says, in Christ there's a gradual development. How can that term, or the term progressive growth, how could that ever be attributed to a God who's unchanging? What is going on here? It's a mystery. And the way that faithful believers had tried to articulate this through the, throughout the centuries, and I do say try, I think they've done a good job, but let's not get too um, confident in our ability to articulate mysteries, but to fairly represent what the Bible says, and the Bible says that Jesus is fully God, but the Bible also says Jesus is fully man. The way that faithful believers over the centuries have tried to articulate this is to affirm that the person of Jesus is one person, just like you and me, one person. But unlike you and me, he has two natures. He has a divine nature, and that divine nature can never change. That divine nature is eternal and unchangeable. The incarnation doesn't alter that, doesn't change that. What happens, rather, in the incarnation is that the everlasting and the eternal and the immutable Son of God takes on a fully human nature. So he continues to be what he has always been and what he, was, what he will always be, this eternal, unchangeable God. He continues to be what he's always been, but now in a different way, packaged slightly differently as he takes on human flesh. The Son of God, friends, whose character, his very heart, is always loving and merciful and just and righteous. He now, the eternal Son of God, expresses that very same heart, those same immutable characteristics, but in a new way, in human form. And this human person grows and develops. But the character, the being, and the essence of God never grows, never develops, is always the same. Carrie Ann has an app on her phone uh, that she got when we found out we were pregnant this time around called The Bump. Maybe some of you moms have used this before, but the kids love to look at it every week because it gives this um, uh, 3D image of the, the fetus in the womb developing and kind of giving you facts each week about, you know, this week your, your child is as, as big as a kumquat and weird things like that uh, that don't mean anything to me. Um, and, but it has the image of the baby too, and that's what they, they love to see. Can we see the baby today? And one of the things that really disturbed Jacob in particular was at the beginning, why has the baby got no eyes? Where are the eyes? Right? Because early stages of development, the eyelids are closed. Maybe there's this little black dot back there, but, but you don't really see any eyeballs. And he kept asking why. We would say, well, they haven't developed yet. They don't start developing until week seven. They don't open until week 27. So last week, we have a baby with eyes open, Lord willing. But consider, friends, that that same process is what our unchanging God underwent, came under in the womb of Mary. Imagine it, the all-seeing God without eyes. They haven't opened yet. They haven't developed yet. How can this be? 
And the answer is it's a mystery. So what's our response to such a mystery? That's what we'll conclude with this morning. What's the response to that mystery? Throughout history, uh, many have tried to bend it in such a way that they could make sense of it, but the only proper response to uh, biblical mystery is not to bend it, but to bow before it. That is to say, uh, not to endeavor to understand how it is, but to worshipfully, joyfully accept that it is. So, the first proper response to the mystery of the Incarnation is a faithful one. We should have a faithful response. We need to come to a place where we accept what the Bible says about Jesus without trying to make sense of all the things that maybe confuse us. And here in Hebrews, the Bible says that Jesus is the same and that his years will have no end. That same Jesus who is made like us in every respect. And we do have an end. And we are not the same. The Bible holds these things in tension, doesn't try to explain them away, just asserts that this is so. So can we make sense of it? No, uh, we cannot. Sinclair Ferguson says that the incarnation, quote, is difficult to understand, but this is so by definition. In other words, it's meant to be confusing. There is no analogy to which we could point and say, it's like that. The incarnation is a singularity, and so we must, Ferguson says, we must resist any tendency to reduce Christ to manageable proportions. He says, no, grasp hold of the magnitude of the reality. And so I I would like to challenge you today that you need to recognize that the Jesus you need is a Jesus you can't fully understand. Did you hear that? The Jesus you need is a Jesus you can't fully understand. You know, if I could manage him, if I could explain him, he would not be God. And if he's not God, then I am not saved. But because he is God, I can be saved if I believe. So we respond to this mystery not with formulas trying to explain it away, but we embrace it by faith that the creator God, without ceasing to be the creator God, became a created man. And he did this for you. He did this for you. The Nicene Creed tells us as much. The Nicene Creed says that Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was made man. Why? For us and for our salvation. So the first response is a faithful one. Beyond that, it should be a worshipful one. We should speak often of the Savior who would leave his exalted glories to take on the infirmities of our human condition. We should speak of that often, not just one day a year, not just one month a year, but truly every Sunday we come to church because his incarnation has made that a reality. My father-in-law was telling me recently that he helped some senior uh, friends of, of, of his by fixing up a shed that they had in the backyard, and I think in particular the ramp that that would get them to the shed or the walkway that gets them to the shed. And these friends in their 90s, they are becoming immobile, but they really care about their home being kept up in in good order and and their their property being um, nice. 
And so he took the time to go over. He got in the dirt and, and was pulling up old planks, and he, he fixed that path to their shed. And he was telling me the other week that the response he got to that was almost embarrassing. He said, you would have thought that my tiny act of kindness extended years to their life. They got him cards. They got him gifts. Uh, this gratitude for, for Bryce getting into the dirt and fixing things up for them. Should we not heap up praises upon praises upon praises that our Savior will get into the dirt and the filth and the muck of our life to fix things for us? That reality should elicit at least one final response that the exalted one would be humbled for our sakes, not just a faithful one, not just a worshipful one, but today I want you to know that when you embrace it by faith and you worship this Savior, you have much reason for hope. That final response should be a hopeful one, that the unchanging God would come in human form, that the creator of the world would be created. That should give us hope. Again, uh, Flavel says this, unbelief usually argues, he's talking about doubt, like when we have doubts, unbelief, usually argues from one of these two grounds. Can God do this or will God do this? Those are the two questions we often have when we're doubting. Can God or will God? We're questioning either his power or his will. This is what Flavel says. But his power to save should never be questioned by anyone who knows what infinite burdens and sufferings Christ supported in our human nature. Surely, his willingness to save should never be questioned by anyone who considers how low he was content to stoop for us. In other words, when you look at the incarnation that Christ would leave heaven, come to earth, when you look at the incarnation, the question really is, what would he not do for you? What would he not do for you? He who for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and made man. It was his love that moved him from heaven to earth. And that love of Christ, as we've asserted, because he is God, is unchanging. It's eternal, immutable. And so this is what, this is what I've been trying to say, that what we celebrate at Christmas, that, that God became a human, that he was a zygote and then became an embryo and then a fetus and then a baby and then a toddler and adolescent, become a young man, that, that he would have growth spurts, that he'd become tired and would need to sleep, that he would need to get a, a haircut. All of this actually underscores that God does not change. How? Well, because we ask, why would he undergo this development? It's because of his love for us. Because he loves us. And his love, his love like his essence never changes. It never fails. And that should give you hope today. What hope there is for the soul that clings to those words from Psalm 102 and Hebrews 1. That the heavens will perish, but you remain. Or in the old English the King James, thou remainest. That is great hope today. There's no sin too great, friends, to keep you from heaven, to keep Christ's work from you. When you believe of the baby born in the manger, thou remainest. When you can assert that of him, you have everything. Every doubt, every fear, every anxiety, you should take an answer with that objection. No, but thou remainest. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and all of my tomorrows. Thou remainest. Let your hopes be fueled by this word, thou remainest. He's the unfailing God of love, and he will always be the unfailing God of love. And how do I know that? I know that because he was willing to come to this world. I know it because he who never changes became a man. Because his love never changes. His love never fails. God is showing us his immutable heart in a new way, in the beating heart of Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary, born in Bethlehem, born to die. And yet even so, we can say, Thou remainest. He changes not. And what I want you to take away today, friends, is that if the incarnation can't change the very heart of God, neither can your sin. Let's pray. Almighty and heavenly Father, we thank you for the mystery of the incarnation that we have been privileged to study for some moments this morning. And we do ask that we would bow before that mystery in faith and in worship and that it would give us hope. We thank you that through the eternally begotten Son of God becoming the, the child of Mary, born in Bethlehem, we would be reminded that you are the faithful God who changes not, the one with whom there is no shadow due to change. And so we can take you at your word when you say you are for us, when you, when you promise us salvation and life, there is no sorrow, there is no setback, and there is no sin that can keep that promise, that truth from us. And the incarnation does not call that into question. It underscores the reality of it all the more. So grow us in faith this day, we pray, so that we would live lives that are assured that we belong to you, and in that way we could serve you with full freedom, and that you would be glorified in our lives. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.